Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Happy to be welcoming wife, widow, mother, survivor, and author, Autumn Tolley Jackson, who will be speaking to us from Burns, Oregon, where she lives with her husband, Kyle, and their two sons. Autumn has, ha has lived a life filled with great love and titanic losses, the loss of a husband, a beloved cousin who was her mentor, her infant daughter, and miscarriages have left scars on her soul and memorial tattoos on her body Yet Autumn has grown through it all, finding love and motivations to get up each day until those days strung into weeks, then months, then years. In her award-winning book, Boldly Into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness, Autumn, who is a remarkable role model for healing and rebirth, shares her incredible story. I'm looking forward to talking with her about her miscarriages, the deaths of her daughter, cousin, and husband, her memorial tattoos, organ donation, how she coped with her profound grief and found the strength to heal, and more for what is surely going to be a poignant, unforgettable interview. Hi, Autumn. Hi, Irene. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. It's so Hi. good to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I really, and I loved your book. I need to tell everyone it is so worth reading. And even though Autumn went through so much, it is uplifting and, it, and it'll really help you uh, if you're processing grief or, or some sad thing, event going on in your life. So let's start Autumn with a question so everybody can get to know you. Would you like to tell us about what you call your simple, ordinary, happy childhood and your loving, happy marriage to your husband, Joe? Yeah, I grew up in Central Oregon in Bend and I was born and raised there into a middle-class family. I went to what I considered good schools. I had friends and I had lots of relatives around all the time and we were a big extended family and nothing really went wrong. I think the first losses I had to deal with were pet losses, dogs, cats, horses, and they were sad, but that was pretty much the extent of it up until I had a few grandparents that passed away and that was normal. And they also weren't a daily part of my life. And so while I grieved them, it was not as hard for me to handle as a child as some of my other losses have been. I loved how you described how you fell in love with Joe right away and how you met him. You want to share that with everyone? You were, he was, he yeah. was, how old were you guys when you got married? Um, oh, when we got married, that's a hard one. 
Uh, we were in our mid twenties when we got married, I believe. I'd have to do the math on that. Um, but it's an approximation. It's, it's yeah, a, it's yeah. So you were typical, you know. Yep, we met know. when we were we met when we were in our twenties, early early twenties. We were new in college. We were uh, just trying to kind of find our way in the world, and. Mm-hmm. We met at a friend's wedding. He had dated the bride at one point. I had dated the groom at one point. And eventually we just kind of got thrown together. We were told to dance with each other. And pretty much from the moment we started dancing with each other, we didn't pay attention to anybody else. That's and beautiful. yeah, it, it was one of those things where you can call it whatever you want or fate or it just, yep. Yeah, it just was. And for the first time in my life, I actually made a move and I offered him my phone number and said, Hey, would you call me if I gave this to you? And he did. And that was history, history. really. Right. Well, but in five short years, you had two miscarriages resulting in the loss of three babies. So now, now things are starting to happen in your life. And then you lost your, then you lost Joe. He was 30 years old when your second son was only two weeks old. Would you like to describe those traumatic losses to us? Yeah, we were happily married for, oh, three or four years and nothing really went wrong. It seemed perfect. We always used to joke about how our marriage and our life and everything was too perfect and something was going to happen. And of course, we never really thought something was going to happen. And so in between our first child and our second child, we had a miscarriage And then we had another miscarriage. And I remember how we used to talk about, well, I guess nobody can have a perfect life. Everybody has to have some bad to counter the good. And these miscarriages, I guess, are just ours. And at that point, I had them. And looking back, I know I was grieving. But at the time, I didn't understand it at all. I was sad, but nobody talks about miscarriages. And so many people have them. And so the the story I took from that was, well, then I shouldn't be sad about it because if nobody else is talking about it, nobody else is sad Mm -hmm. about it when they have their miscarriages, then something's wrong with me. And I couldn't sleep and I wasn't eating great. And I also wasn't talking to Joe about it because in my mind, I was messed up and I didn't want to bring him down. Wow. Now, one of those miscarriages were twins because you lost these. Wow. Yep. Our second one was twins. That's so hard. And then what happened with Joe, which is Awesome. So, so hard. Yeah. Joe was a wildland firefighter. He was an avid hunter and outdoorsman. He was playing basketball with our Parks and Recs League. He had come home one night. Wade, our youngest son, was two weeks old. And he was trying to get in shape. He had a big hunting trip up in Alaska. And so after he came home from basketball, he wanted to go for a jog. And he didn't come in. And I knew he wasn't going to because he didn't want to disturb us or wake up Wade if Wade was sleeping. And he didn't show up. And I started feeling that something must be wrong. And in my mind, something being wrong meant he had probably hurt himself, broken ankle, who knew what. Um, And what I found was a lot different. I made sure everybody was taken care of. And I knew Joe had just gone jogging down our road. So I jumped in the car really quick and went to find him. And I found him on the side of the road, unresponsive. And uh, I didn't know at that point, but he was already gone. So there was just something. 
that was like a mystery, but something happened in his body. Yeah. Done. They, they don't know at first because it was dark and we live in a rural area. There weren't, there aren't any streetlights. Uh, they thought it was a hit and run because why does a 30 year old man just die? Uh, they were of course able to rule that out pretty quick and full autopsy DNA analysis. Uh, they never were able to find any actual cause. They just said unknown natural cars causes his heart stopped wow, and they don't know wow. what caused it. Oh my God. And there you are with a two week old child after Joe died. I know you felt your life was over that you couldn't survive. Would you like to tell us please about the trip you took to be alone with your grief where you felt Joe's presence and the grief, grief group you joined called soaring spirits. Yeah. After Joe died, I was really, really struggling. Uh, just to even breathe. I can and I was trying to nurse a baby. I was trying to take care of a three-year-old um, and get through the services. And once we got those services done, I knew I needed, there was just, he wasn't there. So there was this big hole. And at the same time, there was so much else going on because there was still a lot of family around and I just, I couldn't breathe. And so I knew I needed to get away. And luckily my mom was amazingly supportive. And when I told her that, and I told her where I wanted to go, she made all the arrangements. And I had a friend of mine who had previously had a child and had been storing milk to donate to a bank. And she actually gave all that to us. So Wade would still be able to get all the nutrition he needed. And I was able to go to Bandon, Oregon and the place I went, I'd never gone with Joe, but I'd always felt a sense of peace there. And it's called Shore Acres State Park. It's an old house. The house isn't there anymore, but the gardens are. And this was in mid to late February in Oregon. So there weren't flowers, but it was still pretty green. And the ocean hits the rocks. We're up, up on a cliff looking down. And just walking around in this place of nature, I was able to feel and to see so much and to relate with just the nature of things and how things die and things are reborn and how you, there can both be beauty and anger in the ocean. And there's peace and turmoil. And I think that's when I first started realizing that your emotions don't have to be singular a lot of times your emotions are in conflict with each other at the same point in time. And I've always been very logical and very organized. So I always want to put things in boxes. And I think that trip was really when I started realizing there's not always a nice clean box for things and grief isn't going to have a nice clean box. Started looking outside the box. So what, how, what did that grief group Soaring Spirits do to help you outside that box? So I finally found Soaring Spirits, which was really the first good grief resource I'd found. And it took me a few months because Google doesn't work when you're grieving. And I just wasn't able to find it. And what they did for me was I had found actually their camp widow. And they put on a retreat that's focused on widows. And I went, which is totally out of character for me because I'm a really big introvert. And I didn't like sharing. And I didn't want to talk about myself. But I knew I couldn't survive the way I was going. And so I reached out and I was able to get to camp and all of a sudden for this one weekend, I was surrounded by two to 300 other men and women who hadn't experienced my loss, but had experienced their own losses. And what it did for me was all of a sudden, I didn't have to have this wall where, yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. We're managing. I'm doing what I need to do. I was able to go and drop that wall down and be like, 
it's really hard. I'm really struggling. There's nights where I can't do what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel like I'm taking care of my kids. I cry in the shower because I don't want anybody to see or to feel bad. And I didn't have to uh, try to make other people feel better about my loss. I don't know if that makes sense, but at home I'd see somebody in the store and they'd start crying just looking at me. And so then all of a sudden I felt like I needed to try to make them feel better about it. And so being in Camp Widow was really freeing and allowed me to feel those emotions that I'd really been trying not to feel. It sounds to me like you're a lot like a lot of other people who are so concerned about giving out love to other people and you don't get about self-love and taking it in when it's coming towards you, which is something I learned too when I was grieving because I was very independent and used to mm-hmm. helping everyone. And all of a sudden I was really in need. And that was a big step for me to let other people in to help me. So it sounds like you were starting that path for yourself. Yeah, uh, same thing. Right. And then you endured yet another shock when you suddenly lost your beloved 34-year-old cousin, Brittany, and she was like a sister to you and your mentor. So how did she die? How did you, and how much after you lost Joe, did you lose Brittany? Yeah. So Joe passed away in February and Brittany passed away in September. Oh my gosh. So just when I was starting to feel like I was having some idea on how to manage my grief, uh, all of a sudden I got a call that Brittany was in the hospital. Her heart rate had skyrocketed. They didn't really know what was going on. And what ended up happening was Brittany had struggled with some depression. She'd struggled with some health things and they didn't really, uh, it wasn't diagnosed properly. It was diagnosed as anxiety. It was diagnosed as depression. And in fact, she had a tumor on her adrenal gland called a theochromocytoma. And at the hospital where she was at, the doctors, after they had diagnosed it, said it was the largest one they'd seen. And it had probably been growing for 10 years and the symptoms of it, because it throws those hormones that your adrenal gland produces out of characteristic were increased heart rate, increased signs of depression, increased anxiety were all tied to this type of tumor. And when she first went into the hospital, they gave her beta blockers, which is a standard protocol. Um, But with her tumor being what it was, it interacted inappropriately and her body started to get better. And her brain, unfortunately, did not. Wow. And, and she was gone, too. Yeah. Um, wow. How did you cope with that when you lost her now? Um, at first, I wanted to help take care of things for my aunt and uncle as much as possible. So she ended up going from Eugene, Oregon, where they lived, to Portland, Oregon, where the hospital was. And so while I knew I didn't need to be in the hospital because a bunch of my other family was already there, I knew she'd want somebody to be there to take care of her dog and her horses because those were her things that she really cared about. So I was able to take, load up the car and I actually got the kids and I knew I might need somebody to watch the kids if I did end up having to go to the hospital. So Kyle came with me and uh, I, I took care of the stuff I knew was important to her. And that helped me deal with that immediate grief of just having somebody in the hospital who's not doing good. Yeah. And then, Mike, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I I was going to say after, um, I did end up going to the hospital when they took her off of life support. And after that, I, (laughs) you asked how, how I 
dealt with that grief afterwards. And I, I went back to really feeling lost, but I was able to reach out to some of the people who had supported me who were other widows because they understood the grief. And so I was able to talk about it. So now you had a little bit of a tribe, which, which yeah. was the beginning of getting some help. And mm-hmm. I also, I, I forgot to um, go back to, did you feel Joe's presence when you took that trip? Did you mention that? What was that like for you? He had just died and you were, and, and you took that trip alone. Yeah. And yeah. I remember you felt, you said that you felt his presence with you. I felt his presence in a sense that he was always very supportive of me. I have always been very independent. I've been able to do whatever I wanted. I didn't need help from anybody. And he always understood that about me and supported me in any way he could. And before I'd gone to the coast, I felt very alone. Who was going to help me? Who was going to tell me I was making the right decisions? And I hadn't felt that. And then when I was sitting there at the coast, that presence and that knowledge that there was somebody out there who believed in me, who believed that I could take whatever had happened to me and still live my life and still have a good life, all of a sudden came back to me. And the only way that makes sense to me is to believe that that was Joe providing me some of that comfort. I totally believe that. And then after you lost Joe, you just mentioned the name Kyle. He was an acquaintance of yours and he became your grief person. So would you like to tell us about this blessed person named Kyle and how he became your grief person and how that relationship led to so much more for you? Yeah, Kyle and Joe and I all worked for the same company. And so we all knew each other. I worked in the same area, in the same field as Kyle. So we'd had some interactions, but we were pretty much acquaintances. And Joe and Kyle used to talk about hunting and some other things. And so they'd connected on a little bit more of a personal level. When Joe had passed away, um, living in a rural community, and I'm sure it's similar in, in other areas, but we had people dropping by and bringing food and bringing gifts. And I don't remember a lot of it. I sat pretty still and blacked out for the most part while people did this and my family took care of it. And I remember Kyle coming in because he didn't go to anybody else. He came directly to me. He wasn't scared to see the emotions I was feeling. And he said, I came with some other people from work, but they're in the car because they didn't know what to say. But I wanted to come in and say that it's horrible and it's hard. And oh, by the way, I brought you paper towels and paper plates and garbage bags and a toy for Cody, who was three at the time, because those are the things people forget. They forget that you're going to, yeah, they forget that you're going to all of a sudden be feeding all these people that have also come. And if you don't have to do dishes or whoever's taking care of things doesn't have to do that. And that really stood out for a long time. And then I got to a point where I really wanted to go to a band. I wanted to go see a band about three hours away in Boise. And I knew, even though I was 31 at the time, that my mom would not be supportive of me going three hours while I'm still very much in my acute grief to see this band. And I'd remembered that Kyle and another person we'd worked with also liked that type of music. So I reached out and said, Hey, I want to go to this. I need somebody to, I guess, babysit me. Um, Would you be willing to go? And he agreed. And my other friend agreed. And he ended up not being able to go because his mom had a medical emergency. And so I reached out a few days later just to see how his mom was doing and everything was fine. But that kind of opened up that communication between us. And he was very open about how 
hard grief is. He wasn't trying to say, oh, you'll be okay. You're strong. You're tough. You can handle it. He was saying, it's going to be hard and it's going to hurt and it's never really going to go away, but you're going to learn how to, how to deal with it for you. And I remember, man, had he had his own losses that he was coming from? He had lost his dad a few years before. And so he acknowledged that it wasn't the same loss, but it was still a very big loss. And at one point in time, he goes, you know, you're probably not going to be able to sleep. I tended to have those three o'clocks in the morning. I think a lot of people do. And I'm a bachelor. I'm up late all the time. I put my phone on silent when I go to sleep. So feel free to send me a message. And I took him up on that because, well, if his phone's on silent, I won't be bothering him. And little did I know at that point, he'd stopped putting his phone on silent the next night because he wanted to be there to talk to me at three o'clock in the morning. And it grew from there. Yeah, it grew from there. And most of our conversations, those first few months were very much about Joe because he was one of the few people who wanted to hear the stories and wanted to talk about Joe. And he wasn't scared of making me remember that Joe had died. He acknowledged that we don't forget the people we love. And so we talked a lot about Joe and I was able to talk very openly about my grief. And when people said things that frustrated me, I had somebody I could vent to. And when I was being unreasonable, he also called me out on that. So it was really nice to have somebody to to just talk to and try to figure out how to navigate this grief I all of a sudden had. Yeah, such a, he has, he's such a positive person. I really, I really enjoyed reading about him in your book uh, and how your about your whole relationship. And then you two get married and yes. you have, you share this heart wrenching loss of your precious infant daughter, Riley. I mean, I'm reading your book and I'm reading about Riley and it drew me to tears. Um, your experience, and then you had an experience with organ donation and how that organ donation helped you and Kyle heal from losing Riley. I'm sure this is kind of tough to share with all of us, but would you tell us about that, please? Yeah, we had Riley and three months and everything was perfect. And our family was amazing and she was healthy. And all of a sudden we seemed to all get colds. And so Riley, who was nursing, kind of stopped nursing a little bit and seemed to be getting dehydrated. So thinking she was just dehydrated, we still went into the doctor's office to check it out and they couldn't get an IV into her because she had the pudgiest little arms and legs and her veins were so tiny. Um, that they went ahead and admitted us so we could do a nasogastric tube and get formula directly into her stomach. And the next morning, she seemed to be doing better. She was still a little bit weak, but she wasn't dehydrated. And the doctor just wanted to cover his bases because she was a little bit weak and wanted to test her for meningitis. And we stepped out of the room to do that, and he rolled her onto her side. And at that point, she went into cardiac arrest. Wow. Um, it was They hadn't even started anything. And they worked on her for 40 minutes. And right when we were sitting on the floor with Riley's doctor and the doctor who had been with her when she'd first coded, uh, they were saying they'd keep working on her until we told them to stop. And we were trying to figure out how the heck do you tell somebody to stop trying to save your daughter's life? And at that point, you could feel the atmosphere in the room behind us changed and they had gotten her heart going again. And so they were able to get her stabilized and we went to another hospital and we had hopes that maybe the damage wasn't that bad and we could figure things out. And unfortunately, after a few days, it became very clear that while her heart was functioning better, her brain had stopped 
functioning. Now you eventually found out that what killed her was botulism? Yeah, so about two weeks after we had left the hospital, we got a call from the doctor there and he said that she had tested positive for infant botulism. And it's very rare. Um, it's the reason why they say not to feed babies honey anymore. It's something that started about in the eighties. And that's because botulism is it's complicated. It's a bacteria that produces a spore and the spore produces a toxin and the toxin relaxes muscles to the point that they don't function properly. Wow. That and is Typically, there's more signs. I think there's about 250 or so cases in the U.S. annually. Um, Riley was the fourth documented death from it in the last 20 years. Wow. So usually it's a lot of hospital stays, but it's treatable and it's survivable. And for some, of, some unknown reason, uh, she was extra susceptible and she didn't show typical symptoms. How heartbreaking. Totally but I have to say, I really admire and resonate with the many ways you and Kyle incorporated everyone you lost, including Joe, Riley, everyone into your lives. Could you share that with us? I thought it was so healing when I was reading in your book about how um, you worked through your grief and you embraced everyone that you lost. Well, I think we first started doing that. And I debated a lot when Kyle and I got wedding or we got wedding when we got married. Uh, the Joe was very much a part of the kid's life. We live where his family is. They know him. And we wanted to make sure they still recognize that he had a, they had a dad that loved him. And so at the wedding, we had a memorial table that not only had Kyle's dad on there and Brittany, but also had a picture of Joe on there because as much as people don't want to admit it, I wouldn't have been marrying Kyle if it hadn't been for Joe. And Joe was very much a part of my life and there was no going back on that, nor would I want to. And so we had a memorial table. We actually had the pastor say something because I choose to wear my wedding band from Joe. And then I'd had a widow ring make, made just for my own personal benefit. And then I got a wedding band from Kyle and I wear them all on my left hand ring finger because it's all part of my story. It's a, tell us about a widow ring. I never heard of that before. What's a widow ring? Um, I think it's just something somebody made up at one point to make you feel better about having some physical piece to document your widow. So mine is just, uh, it's just a simple band that has five, I think five stones. Yep. Five stones on it. And I decided to go with black diamonds to represent the loss and two blue sapphires, which were his first stone. And Beautiful. it, it's just a physical symbol for me that helped show that I was married to him and I lost him, but he's still a part of my life. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I, even in your book, the way in your book, you list all the people who are still part of your life, even though you lost them. And then you also acknowledge those who are in the flesh physically here with you. I just wonderful. So as you and Kyle learned how to live with each loss, you grew stronger while grieving. And you were able to hold on to happiness despite this incredibly deep grief. Could you share with all of us how you were able to find light in such immense, intense darkness? Yeah, I think going back a little bit to Riley and the organ donation part, when we were in the hospital, 
we knew that how horrible it was to lose a child because she'd been declared brain dead and we were still doing the final tests. But at that point, we knew that it was very unlikely that she was going to come back to us. And we didn't want other parents to feel that way if we could help it. So we chose to look into the organ donation. And at that point, it made it so we were in the hospital for three extra days. And so we had a lot of time to talk to each other. And it was, we weren't separated at all. I mean, we didn't even like going to the bathroom because (laughs) we needed that connection. We needed each other's just presence to help support us through this. But we laid there in the room and we talked about, we said, how do you grieve? How are you going to act? How, what are the things that are going to happen? And we talked to each other about what we knew about our own grief and what we did so we could be prepared to help the other person when those signs were showing up. Because sometimes when you're grieving and you are reacting, you don't necessarily put two and two together right away. And so we had that conversation and we also said, hey, no crying in the shower. He knew I had done that a lot with Joe, trying to hide my pain from everybody else. And so none of that, if we're going to grieve, we're going to grieve together. And I think that was one of the biggest things was just to make sure we put that grief out there in the open and we agreed to feel our feelings and talk about it as much as we could and having that support. That's amazing. And you kept processing. Tell us about the organ. I mean, you you, uh, donated Riley's organs and you actually helped some people, which is, has really helped you with this loss. So would you like to share that with us? I would. The organ donation was one of those things that surprised us. Like I mentioned, we wanted to do it to save other people from the pain, but we hadn't realized. Did the doctors offer you this option? No, we actually approached them about it. Um, Kyle and I, it wasn't even really a conversation. It was just, you had mentioned like sometimes the feelings just come over you. And it was just one of those where we both kind of looked at each other and said, should we ask him about organ donation? And we didn't need to have the conversation. We were both just on the same page and we're really drawn to it. And I think it caught him off guard because Riley was so small that they didn't even know if organ donation would be possible, but they called in the organ procurement organization and she passed the size requirements and she was able to donate her heart and her liver and her kidneys. And at one point in time, while we were in the hospital, it seemed like the coroner wasn't going to sign off on her donating because you have to remember, I said, we found out what caused it two weeks later. So while we were in the hospital, it was completely unknown as to what had gone wrong with her. And the coroner wanted to make sure that donating her organs wouldn't spread um, these other diseases around. And there were a few in particular he was worried about. And our doctor at the hospital really went to bat for us and sat down with the coroner and said, hey, let's figure out if we can find a compromise. And they were able to test for those diseases and she was negative, but we hadn't realized until it was almost taken away how much being able to donate her organs was actually helping us. We just thought we wanted to help other people, but it was really helpful because we lost her no matter what. She was gone. She was not coming home. And that's never going to be okay. And nothing's going to make that better. But at the same time, if somebody else could get something good out of it, that really took a little bit of the edge off of our grief. That's, and and not only that, you helped. So you have a couple of inspiring stories about how you help people with her organ donation. You want to share one or two of them? Yeah, we have been writing letters and we don't want to push people, but you can write anonymous letters as either a recipient or a donor. And we wanted to just let them know how much 
being a donor family had helped us with our grief. And so we reached out and it took a while, but the first letter we got was from her kidney recipient, which was actually an older diabetic woman who needed new kidneys. And she had kids and grandkids. And they wrote us this letter around Christmas, just saying how basically they didn't think they'd have another Christmas with her and they were able to have this. And so it wasn't just her that we touched. You all of a sudden realize that it's just this growing effect that all of her kids and all of her grandkids and friends benefited. And then, oh, I think it was last year we got, we never got a letter, but the heart recipient is a beautiful little boy that was an infant when he received her heart. And all of a sudden he's a toddler or a preschooler and he's on a playground playing and eating snacks. And they sent a video of uh, echocardiogram of her heart. So we could both see her heart functioning and hear it. Um, and that was pretty amazing to know that her heart is still helping to keep somebody alive, even though she passed away multiple years ago. That's an incredible story, incredible story. And I'm going to follow it with, um, I'd like you to please describe your memorial tattoos and how they helped you with your grief. Yeah, the first memorial tattoo I got was actually for our miscarriages. I'd had a few tattoos and I knew I liked them, but I really struggled with the miscarriages. Like I mentioned, I didn't know I was grieving. I just wanted something to recognize that these three babies existed. And Joe, who was totally against tattoos, but very supportive of me uh, and much more artistic, helped me design some. And so on my ankle, while Joe was still alive, I got three half hearts, kind of three broken hearts with each with a little flower. Mm. And I got that on my ankle and it was amazing how much, once I had decided to do that and put this scar as beautiful as it was basically a scar on my body for that physical pain. I was feeling that emotional pain that really is physical. Uh, I started feeling better and it wasn't so hard to bear and I was able to sleep better. And so then when Joe died, I knew I wanted to get a tattoo for him also, because I like having that physical reminder. And I got a design he had drawn for me. I took it to a tattoo shop and I said, I want to make this into a tattoo to put across my back. Um, And so it spreads out across my back a little bit like wings, but it helps me feel like he's always with me. And then, yeah. And so of course I kept it up and, uh, when Riley died, Kyle and I had decided when we were in the hospital, cause she's three months. So she had some personality, but it was very limited. And we all decided that she really liked butterflies and her favorite color was purple. And there was no discussion on it. You'd think there'd be argument about it, but it just seemed so right that that's what she would have liked that we basically went to a tattoo artist again and said, we lost our daughter. We want memorial tattoos. We want butterflies and flowers. And we want them to be purple. And he decided two different ones. Um, mine kind of goes up my arm and is near Joe's. And then I also got one on my forearm that says courageous miracle. Cause when we were in the hospital, one of the nurses told us that Riley actually, one of its meanings is courage and courageous. Oh. And so we started talking about how she was our courageous miracle because any baby really is a miracle. And she was just amazing in our family, even though we only had her for three months, but then she was also a miracle for three other families. That so, is such a wonderful story. 
Thank you. Do you also have a tattoo for Brittany? I haven't gotten one for Brittany, partly because I can't decide what I, what would be best. Um, And also it, it just with a different relationship for whatever reason, I haven't been drawn to as much. And I think about it and I bring it up, but I don't want to force myself into something. So when I know, and when I have an idea that I know is right, I'm sure I'll get one for her, but I've been trying to be really careful with my grief as it's grown to not force things that either I'm not feeling or to force things that other people tell me I should do. So I'm trying to be pretty introspective with it. You're so wise. By the way, you worked with a transformative coach. When did you work with this transformative coach? And how did that help you? Yeah. After Brittany died, my sister reached out to me and said, you really should go talk to this lady. I went to see her and she's amazing. And I was really hesitant because I had one experience with a therapist right after Joe died. And I sat down on the couch and she said, how are you feeling? And I pretty much shut down at that point because I was a week or two away from my husband just dying. I was feeling bad. If you couldn't see that, I didn't need to talk to you. And that really, I wasn't, like I said before, I'm not big on sharing. I don't like talking a whole lot. And that just completely turned me off of any sort of therapy type help. But my sister kind of kept mentioning it and really pushed and I ended up going and the woman I ended up seeing was very straightforward. She was very blunt and she asked really hard questions that made me think. And she didn't put up with any BS, I guess you could say. So if if I gave the answer that seemed to be the expected answer because I didn't want to look deeper, she called me on it. And that really helped me to look at what was important to me. And she's the one who really helped me decide to move forward with Kyle because we did enter into a relationship pretty early on. And I was upset about people judging it and thinking maybe I didn't like Joe or love him, or I was being disrespectful to his memory or think that Kyle was just taking advantage of me. And I had a lot of struggles as to what other people would think about my grief and how I was doing it. And she really helped walk me through the fact that I can grieve in whatever way works best for me. And if I'm being careful to think about my choices and make sure they're the choices I need to make, and I'm okay with them, then nobody else's opinion really matters. That's wonderful. Yeah. I I have to say, and she really helped you because I remember reading your book about how even accepting Joe's uh, parents were, I mean, how you... Mm -hmm brought everybody into that so now that we've worked our way up to it tell us about your wonderful award-winning book boldly into the darkness living with loss growing with grief and holding on to happiness which you certainly did all of the above so what would you like everybody to know I would like everybody to know that I wrote my story as detailed as I could I wrote it a few months after Riley had passed away because I felt that I had a story to share and all these things that have happened to me as horrible as they have been, I could give them a reason and I could bring hope to people that may be experiencing something similar. And that became really important to me because if I didn't choose to make something good come out of my losses, then they would just all be bad. And like I said before with Riley, they are horrible and it's not okay that it happened, but it still happened. So 
I wanted to share, and I'd known from talking to a few people after Riley, because I tried to be really open after Riley had passed away, that people started coming back to me and saying, hey, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for letting me know that I've been feeling these feelings and I thought I was alone. And so really putting that down and I try to talk about my losses and you can tell I'm talking about it from a perspective in the future because I can look back and be like, oh yeah, I was grieving those miscarriages. But I also tried to be really open and honest about not knowing what to do with his deodorant because one, it was a part of him and I didn't want to throw it away and I didn't want to be wasteful. And so I wanted people to know that it's whatever their grief is and whatever they're doing, it's okay. And there's somebody out there that can hopefully understand, even if they haven't gone through the same losses. Well, you talk about what I really loved about your book is you examine all the lessons and outcomes of your life story. And I think that um, you really leave people with the understanding that they have choices and you kept making all these healthy choices. You were in so much pain, and, but instead of, di- instead of sitting in your swamp, you kept moving forward as best that you could. And you chose really healthy ways to go about it, real positive ways to go about it. And that's it's so uplifting when you read the book about your choices. It really is. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about that how finding a purpose for loss can lighten the loss of grief, which I know you did with Riley with the organ donation. Do you want to speak a little more to that? I think once, for me at least, once I started really talking about my loss and realizing that even just that could help people, it still hurt, but it hurt a little bit less. Um, I was able to talk about it easier instead of crying every time I mentioned her name. I was able to share her story better. And I really found that I was able to embrace the lives of these people I loved more by talking about it. And that's, I guess that's what I mean by really helping to lighten the load. And so what that kind of worked into first was the website I put together, which is just growingwithgrief.com, where I just provide research. Basically I do the research for people and it's a work in progress website because I have other, (laughs) other priorities, but I mentioned Google didn't work when Joe died. It was really hard for me to find resources. And so I've just put books and podcasts and organizations and any other information I can find that might be helpful to somebody in one spot. And I find that every time I can help somebody, even if they just send me an email and say, this is my loss, what do you recommend? I can do the research for them and take that little bit of weight off of their grief, that little bit of pressure, while also encouraging them to find the support they need. Because I know from when I was grieving, if I couldn't find an answer in about two minutes, that's all the energy I had. And so maybe if I'd had somebody to help me, I would have found my life coach sooner. Um, and so it's it, wonderful that you're doing that. It really is. It's, it's just one of the little ways I can give back and people always say, oh, it's so nice. It's so great. And I guess it is being selfish about it because it helps me feel better about the losses I've I've done. And so the organ donation thing, I'm continuing. I'm trying to bring Riley to be honored on the Donate Life Flow at the Rose Parade next year because I really feel that her story can help others because who knew that a three-month-old infant could be an organ donor? And the hospital wasn't even going to bring up organ donation to us. So if I can share her story, then maybe other parents who find themselves in such an unfortunate situation might be able to donate organs 
and both get the the healing from that that we got while also providing miracles for other families. So I'm really every little bit I can do, I find makes me maybe accept the grief and the feelings a little bit better and provide just a purpose. They're not there just to hurt me now. They're there to help other people as well. It's so wonderful because I found that too with this, with this podcast, every time you help someone, it helps you. Yeah. It, it really, it really redounds to you. And I know you also describe, you also have workshops on differing aspects of grief and are they online? Would you like to tell us about that? So at this point, I don't have any online. Um, I could do some online. If somebody was interested, they could reach out to me. I've been trying to do them mostly with free grief conferences because I think the free ones are easier for people to get to, but also wherever I can speak out, whether it's a workshop at a library or a workshop locally within the community, uh, I'm pretty much open to whatever people need um, to, to help them or to help in their communities. It's wonderful. And um, why is it important for a person to heal in your opinion? And how does being resilient help with that process? I think the resiliency thing, if I can touch on that first, helps because it's understanding that we're made to deal with grief. Everything that's living is going to die at some point. And we live in a culture that wants to kind of shove that under the rug until it happens. And even then it barely peaks out. And so really trying to recognize that we are made to grieve. We just have to let ourselves do it. And that's really, in my opinion, comes down to being able to feel your feelings, to sit and boldly go into the darkness, which is where I got the title for the book from. You have to stop and really turn the, and look at those feelings and allow yourself to feel the anger and the hurt and the pain. Because if you're not embracing those feelings and you're not feeling those feelings, you're also not feeling the good ones that might come from seeing your child laugh or seeing some wildlife or a rainbow or whatever comforts you, you have to be able to let all of your emotions in. And when you're trying to suppress them so much and you're trying not to heal, and you don't know that you're trying not to heal, you're just trying to survive, but it's so easy just to suppress those. I'll deal with it later. I'll cry later. I'll deal with it later. And when you really start to embrace them, you can fully open yourself up to the bad emotions, but more importantly, you can open yourself up to the good emotions, to the good things that come. And you understand that you can be sad and happy at the same time. And is that what you call being resilient and I, making it important to reach out to find what works for you to heal? Yeah. So I didn't learn any of that by myself. Like I said, I had a tribe, I had soaring spirits, I had a life coach. And it took a while for me to get to this point where I do understand that. But yeah, I think knowing you're resilient is knowing that you can survive, but you do have to make the choices to do it in a way that's going to give you the best life possible. Good for you. And uh, now that everybody loves you and (laughs) you want to buy your book, would you like to tell us all the best ways for the members of our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience to connect with you? Yes. My book is called Boldly into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness. And it is a memoir that is available as a paperback or an ebook or an audiobook wherever you purchase those. So support your independent bookstore, but if it's easier, you can also get it on Amazon. And if they want to connect with you on the 
on the website is growingwithgrief.com, right? Correct. Okay. And, and uh, go ahead. I was going to say, and send me an email if you aren't sure what grief resources you need or what might be available. I'm happy to do that research for you. That's wonderful. And what is the autumn enlightened important tip for finding joy in life? Don't be scared to embrace the good feelings. Don't, let's turn that around. Let's say do. If you see something and you know in the past before the trauma, before whatever you're dealing with, it would have made you smile, smile at it, or at least recognize that you would have smiled at it before and recognizing that there's still good in the world. There's still things that can make you happy and can make you smile. Eventually you come to actually start feeling those feelings again. And it can be hard because the bad feelings and the negative feelings around grief are so strong, but just recognizing that you see something that's pretty. And then maybe the next time, not only you can recognize it, but you might enjoy it a little bit. And then you might smile and you might laugh and giving yourself permission to feel those things, I think is the biggest thing because once you can feel those, then you really have that motivation to continue making those choices that can heal you through your grief. That's beautiful. And allow yourself, I mean, because you can be both sad and feel joy at the same time. Yeah. One does not exclude the other. That's wonderful. Autumn, as we both well know, our souls grieve deeply for those we love. Grief and Rebirth podcast seeks to enlighten, educate, and inspire its audience with helpful healing options as they journey through grief. This mission syncs with both your book which is so inspiring and uplifting, boldly into the darkness. And your website, growingwithgrief.com, because through each, you provide those who are grieving with resources, community, inspiration, and help, lightening the weight of the grief they are carrying and providing hope. What a true blessing. Thank you for so courageously sharing your amazing story with all of us. And I thank you from my heart for this poignant, unforgettable interview. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube. Like, subscribe, and hit notify to make sure you'll get inspiring new interviews like this one with Autumn coming your way. Thank you so much. And as I like to say, to be continued, many blessings and bye for now. Mm -hmm.